0: This podcast is offered by Jokoji Zen Center, on the web at jokoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you.
1: Good morning. It's uh, nice to connect with all of you. Uh, it's, still, it's still strange for me not to be able to be at Jikoji. Uh, in person, I haven't actually been there physically since, I think, July now. Um, And hopefully that will change soon, and it'll be easier for all of us to come together. But for now, it's very nice to, to be able to connect with all of you this way Uh, if you're comfortable and you're able it's uh it's nice if you can turn on your camera and I can see your your faces it makes it a little more normal a little less strange uh, but I understand that may not be possible for everyone you know I think one of the one of the things this year has really taught us is that uh, life and and the universe are quite unpredictable, and nothing lasts forever. And I'll uh, I'll come back to those themes uh, in a little bit. I, as I mentioned last month when I spoke, uh, I'm trying to speak monthly now uh, with Jacoji. Um, And again, hopefully actually at Jikoji, not too long from now. And uh, the theme I proposed for these talks is Zen for beginners. I talked a little bit about why I chose that last month. But again, in, in Zen, in our practice, uh, there's nothing wrong with being beginners. Uh, being called a beginner, you know, is not an insult. It's uh, it's a compliment in many ways. We all try to approach our practice uh, as beginners, and so I hope you won't mind if I continue that theme. Uh, today. Of course, it's hard to think about uh, Zen and beginners without thinking about uh, that most famous book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is a collection of talks from Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master who, who invited our own teacher, Kobin, to come to America So in a sense is also indirectly responsible for Jokoji and the rest of our Sangha having been established. Uh, And in a talk he gave not far from me here uh, and not far from Jokoji, um, I think back in 1965, Suzuki Roshi began by saying, People say to study Zen is difficult, but there is some misunderstanding why it is difficult. And a slightly edited version of that line became the first line of his book. And I still remember when I read it for the first time. It has always stuck with me since then. So today I thought I would talk a little bit about what does make Zen practice difficult. I would talk a little bit about uh, the obstacles to Zen practice. Uh, These days, people often uh, just sort of out in the world uh, ask me questions about meditation or ask me if I can teach them how to meditate. Uh, as many of you know, I, I work in the world, encounter lots of people. Um, and now that I've written a couple books and, and, and done more public teaching, uh, more and more people that I meet know that I practice Zen and, and that, I, that I teach. But the truth is when people ask me uh, to teach them about meditation, I often don't know exactly what to say. Because in some ways, of course, our practice of meditation is very easy. You know, you don't need to learn any complicated mantras or there's not some special style of breathing. Uh, the traditional posture can be explained in really just a couple, couple minutes. Um, and honestly, if that posture is too difficult for someone, you can sit in some other posture. Uh, we're not really, really sticklers for that. Uh, and so in a funny way, there's, there's not a lot to learn and not a lot to teach. Uh, ever, ever since this pandemic started, uh, I've been, uh, you know, I've been at home and, and had a little more time to myself. And, and one of the projects I took on was to start uh, learning uh, Pali and Sanskrit, these uh, ancient Buddhist languages. And learning those languages is hard. Uh, there's a lot to learn. The grammar is incredibly complicated. Uh, there's all these declensions and conjugations, and there's tons of vocabulary. Uh, and uh, you know, honestly, my, my progress has been extremely slow. Um, and so, you know, if somebody like myself wants to learn a language like that, it's pretty clear how you progress, where you start and all the things you've got to learn in order to really master it. But that's not really true of of Zen. And yet of course it is difficult And I think one of the things that Zen practice shows us is that something can be difficult without being complicated. And Zen is hard, even though it's very simple. I think in some ways, it's more like learning to swim or learning to ride a bike than it is like learning to read Sanskrit. It's uh, something that's very easy to explain, but somehow difficult to do. And actually, I mean, it's much, much harder than learning to ride a bike, you know, learning to ride a bike famously is something you just learn once and then you never forget. But I find at least in Zen, we're constantly forgetting what we've learned. And so Zen is something we have to learn just over and over again. It's like we almost start from scratch each time we get on the bike. So I wanna talk a little bit about why, why that is and, and some of the specific obstacles that seem to get in our way. Some of the specific things that seem to make Zen hard. One of these is just uh, our own kind of busyness. And when I, uh, when I talk to people about meditation, I think this is the, the obstacle I hear most of all. We're also busy these days and people say they don't have time to meditate regularly. Many people will tell me that they have always wanted to meditate or maybe tried meditating once and always wanted to continue. But again, they just don't have time. They're just too busy. And very often the first question people ask me after some sort of meditation class or retreat is how long should I meditate? And that's a very hard question to answer. Uh, In some ways, I think the the most honest answer would just be, how long do you have? It, uh, It doesn't necessarily take a long time to do our practice, but in a sense, there's no amount of time that's too long or too short. You can have a deep practice meditating five or 10 minutes at a time. And yet at the same time, meditating for five hours sometimes is not enough. I'm told the Dalai Lama still meditates several hours each day. And he's been doing that since he was a little boy, probably, I don't know, seven, seven and a half decades. So he must feel that hasn't been enough. And yet at the same time, there've been times in my life where I just We'd meditate for 10 minutes in the morning. And it really made a difference. If I missed it, I could tell. It seems what's most important is committing to to a regular consistent practice, to finding some amount of time, some time during the day where we can meditate consistently. And really, I think no matter how busy we are, we can all find some time to do that. The second obstacle I hear people talk about often is, uh, is distraction. So even once we find some time to sit, find maybe a corner of our house, our room, find a cushion, sit down. We can't seem to calm our minds. We just constant, constantly have thoughts, daydreams. And people often ask me, how can I uh, get rid of all that distraction? How can I get my mind to calm down? And so I think the, an important thing to remember about our practice is there's no particular need to calm your mind. There isn't some ideal state of mind we're trying to achieve. To the extent that there's a goal, the goal is just to sit and be present with yourself to notice exactly what's happening for you at this moment. And people have a very hard time believing that, but I really think it's true. The goal, if there is a goal, is just to notice exactly what happens when you sit on that cushion. In a sense, we're like scientists running an experiment. And the goal is just to observe, to collect the data. In a sense, there's no good data or bad data because whatever we observe will tell us something, we'll learn something. We can learn from whatever happens. If your mind is racing, then you observe your mind racing. If your mind slows, becomes still, then you observe your mind still. In the Pali Sutras, there's three, I guess you would say fundamental truths of Buddhism. And the first of these, Perhaps the most important is the one I alluded to before. Anicca, impermanence. Nothing lasts forever. And so even if your mind is racing, it won't always be racing. And even if your mind is still, it won't always be still. And we learn that just by paying attention, just by noticing. By noticing our mind exactly as it is. I often think of the analogy uh, of like going on a long road trip with a friend, which maybe some of you have done, or siblings. And at first, you're maybe someone you haven't seen in a little while. And so at first, you're driving together on this many-hour trip. And you're just talking to each other, talking, talking, talking. You have so much to say to this person you haven't seen and all these hours ahead of you. But eventually, if it's a really long trip, you run out of things to say. And if it's a good friend or a sibling you get along with, well, you eventually just stop talking, just sitting together. And that's okay too, because you've said the things that needed to be said And now you can just be present with each other. So I often think that meditation is a little bit like taking a road trip with yourself. That again, at first, there's all this talking, talking, talking to yourself. It seems like there's so many, so many things you have to catch up with, so many things you have to remember, But eventually you run out of things to say even to yourself and things sort of settle down and you can just sit quietly and that's okay. Again, the principle of impermanence tells us that neither the talking nor the stillness will last forever. And there's something to learn from each one. A third obstacle that that I know I face and others face uh, is frustration. Impatience is maybe another way to put it. And so even people that have been meditating for a little while, maybe have taken a few classes or have sat with me a few times, will ask, when will I start to feel different? When will I notice a change? And again, the honest answer to that is that I don't know. That's the sort of bad news. I don't know when you'll feel different. But I guess the good news, the good news is that you don't need to feel different. No matter how you're feeling right now, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing you have to change. Or maybe another way to say that is, there's nothing uniquely wrong. We're all right and wrong in the same ways. And in a sense, that's the second of the three fundamental truths, dukkha, suffering that we all suffer, we just do, it's universal. It's a fundamental reality of existence. And and that means you didn't do anything wrong to cause it. There's nothing you could have done that would make all suffering go away. And yet at the same time, that doesn't mean there's no hope. It doesn't mean there can only be suffering. Even that suffering we're feeling right now, that too is impermanent. And even just Accepting and understanding the suffering can sometimes lead us to suffer a little less. Buddha tells this parable of uh, suffering. that it's like being shot by an arrow where the first arrow that strikes you, that's the suffering itself. That's the, the pain or whatever difficulty you're facing. But then often it feels like we've been struck by a second arrow. And that second arrow is the feeling that There was something unfair, unjust, unreasonable, unlucky about getting hit by that first arrow. And the way Buddha explains it, there's no avoiding the first arrow, but the second arrow is more of a choice. We can't avoid suffering, but we don't need to suffer about the suffering. And it's that second kind of suffering that our practice helps us avoid. There's another story in the uh, old texts. Uh, the story of Ananda, one of Buddha's great disciples. Sometimes in our morning service, we, we chant the names of all the teachers from Buddha to, to Kobin. Uh, and I think Ananda's number three. I think he's the third one in that list. Uh, and much of the reason that we have Buddha's teachings available to us uh, is because Ananda memorized them. He sat with Buddha and listened to almost all the teachings. There's a few that come from someone else, but he listened to almost all of them and memorized them so that uh, they could be repeated and perpetuated. And so the story goes that sometime after Buddha passed, after the peri his most senior disciples decided they would get together and recite the teachings together to just ensure that they all remembered what they were. And so they uh, decided to collect 500 uh, Arhats, fully enlightened students to have what became known as the first council where they would all come together and they would recite all the teachings of the Buddha. And, uh, and so of course they wanted Ananda to join since he knew more of the teachings than anyone. But the problem was that uh, that Ananda actually was not an arhat; he had not had a awakening experience at that time, and uh, like like these students who sometimes ask me when they'll when they'll start to feel different. He uh, he wanted to know when he would have his awakening, and in particular. He wanted to be sure he had it before the first council. The other senior students had agreed to make an exception for him, that it could be 499 fully awakened students plus Ananda. But he didn't like that. Uh, As you could imagine, perhaps he found that a little humiliating. Uh, And so he vowed that he would have his awakening. He would feel different before the council took place and he sat diligently, practiced, tried to do all the things that he remembered Buddha teaching. But it didn't happen. He didn't feel different. And it got really all the way down to the wire. It got to the, the night before the council was supposed to take place. Uh, and so it was now or never. And so Ananda decided he would just stay up all night, much like the Buddha himself had done. And uh, he, would, he just vowed he would have his, his awakening before the council started. And so he sat all night till the early hours of the morning. And it didn't happen. Uh, and so he he realized that was it. He was out of time. Um, he was going to have to attend the council, you know, as as a plus one uh, instead of as one of the awakened students. And so, with just a few hours before, he decided, you know, just to give up. And get a little sleep uh, and forget about trying to become awakened and so just right there he just just decided to lay down and just relax and it said that before his head hit the pillow he realized his awakening it just took letting go of this idea of progress and goals. And so I think all of us have days where our meditation feels good and somehow we feel like we're making some progress. And all of us have days when meditation doesn't feel good and we feel stuck or feel like nothing is happening. And I think the key is just to stick with it on both days to not get too fixated on this sense of progress. And just notice each time we sit exactly what's happening at that moment. And just let the practice carry us along. Those are some of the obstacles that I think we face all the time. Of course, right now in this incredibly strange year, more than a year of pandemic that we've been in, there are some unique or different obstacles. One of these is just distance. You know, distancing now has become a a verb, and it's something that we all do all the time. And even though, you know, meditation may seem like a solitary activity, like the most solitary activity you could imagine. The paradox of our practice is that it's almost always been done in groups ever since Buddha himself began teaching 2,500 years ago. Groups of students like us have gotten together and sat together, and so there's something uh, there's something unnatural about all this distance. Um, practicing at a distance is very strange, particularly in Zen. There's a a long tradition and a, and a long focus on community practice. Uh, not just sitting together, but walking together, eating together, cleaning together, chanting, bowing, all these things. And certainly I miss that. I miss the physical contact, the, the intimacy of Zen practice, when we can do it physically together. And from that distance, I think comes another potential obstacle, which is loneliness. With all this distance, it's very easy to feel alone. Because in some sense, many of us are alone. And that brings me to the last of those three fundamental truths of Buddhism. Anatta or no self. No self is I think one of the trickier parts of Buddhism to explain or to understand because no self doesn't exactly mean that we don't exist. We do exist. If we didn't exist, if there was no physical form, we wouldn't have to worry about things like viruses, disease. But of course we do, we do inhabit these bodies. If, uh, if you were to throw something at me, it would, it would bounce off. Whereas if you threw something right next to me, it would continue. So there is something different. We're not ghosts. We're not purely ephemeral. And I think that's part of why the distance is so difficult because we are physical beings and we miss physical contact. And so the principle of no self is about something a little more subtle than that. It's not that we're just some sort of illusion or some sort of virtual being. It's that we exist, but we just don't exist independently of everything else. If you look really closely There's no clear line where we end and everything else begins. In that example of someone maybe throwing a ball at me versus next to me, no matter how closely you look, you can never quite find the, the border. So we're not truly separate from each other. We exist, but not the way we think we exist. I sometimes think of the example of the, the Morning Star, uh, which is you know, the site that is said to have triggered or at least accompanied Buddha's first realization of awakening. Of course, the morning star exists. If we were to sit all night on a clear night, we might also see it just before dawn. And yet it turns out the morning star is not a star. It's a planet. It's Venus. If we could see it really clearly, if we got a telescope perhaps, we would see that it's not a star. And so again, it exists, and yet it's not what it seems. It's not what we think it is. And we're much the same way. And if we really deeply understand this, if we deeply understand that we exist, but not separate from everything around us, then we know that we're not alone. Because how can you be alone if you're intimately connected to everything else? These obstacles are are real, these difficulties. In many ways, Zen is hard, our practice is hard. But the obstacles can be overcome. This is, I think, the, the example of the Buddha. This is why we put up statues of him, talk about him. Because unlike you know some of the great teachers in in other religious traditions, Buddha is not a god or an angel or or really anything other than an ordinary human being. Or at least that may not be quite right, but at least he started as an ordinary human being. And. Although you might say he became something extraordinary. That was through his own doing. There was no divine intervention. There was no extra help. He realized his awakening through practice the same way that each of us can. He overcame these obstacles and he woke up. And if he can do it, so can we. He didn't start with any advantages beyond what we start with. He practiced diligently. He made an effort and he faced these obstacles. In Pali, there's a saying, yo pasati, so pasati," which means, who sees Buddha, sees Dharma. If you see Buddha's example, then really you see his whole teaching. These obstacles are hard, but they aren't as hard as we think they are. And through this very simple practice, that again can be explained in a couple of minutes, through just persevering in this practice, we can overcome these obstacles as well. Thank you. I think we have time for some questions. You're welcome to ask them verbally or type them into the chat or whatever, however you'd like to, but we uh, we do have some time if anyone would like to discuss anything.
2: Hi Dan, good to see you. Um, I have a friend who is a Zen priest. He happens to be deaf. You may know him, Ocean, Ocean Jennings. And the name of his sangha is No Barriers Zen.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And because of the name of his sangha, who he, you know, expressly is seeking to serve people who usually can't sit with us because they're differently abled. But the name of his Zendo has just been really with me lately about, you know, what are my barriers? And, and I've pretty much convinced myself that there are no barriers, even though you've just listed a bunch, <laughs> that they don't really exist, that you know they're, they're um, made up. And uh, it's, it's very helpful to remember that. I mean, I don't always remember it. Usually I think there are lots of barriers, but uh, sitting often I remember that there's, there are no barriers. And so I'm, I'm very um, interested in that kind of place to return to um, when I feel liberated from those barriers. So mm-hmm. I wanted to share, I appreciate the discussion about barriers.
1: Thank you. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that. And. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the the paradox is, of course, there are obstacles or barriers, and yet at the same time there there are none. Um, there, it's not exactly that the practice is easy. Um, it does take effort, but it's completely possible, um, and. The barriers we face are all are all ours to overcome. There are no insurmountable barriers. I love the name of that sangha. So thank you for sharing it.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just thinking about the idea of barriers and I think what came to mind was that little sort of I don't know it's a gotha that little expression uh, may we exist in muddy waters with purity like the lotus thus about a buddha and the idea that muddy waters is food so can you say something or about barriers being nourishment or yeah. something like that. I don't know if I'm gonna cut it all wrong or
1: <laughs> Yes, I think you're right that at some level, if the practice was too easy, if there were no obstacles, I don't know, it might, it might not be practice. It might not really do anything. Um I don't know if this is a good example, but when I early in my Zen training, I lived for a little while at the San Francisco Zen Center, and although I was young and in, in okay shape, I you know, my back would hurt a lot with sitting so much. Um, and uh, I would talk to the teachers there about what I, what I could do because it really felt like it was quite an obstacle. And one of the things that one of the teachers suggested is that I could sit laying down. So lay down instead of sit. Um, uh, and I remember that I, uh, so I tried that one, one night. So I, you know, we would sit in the morning, we'd sit again at night. And maybe this was even during a session when we were sitting, of course, all day. But at night, I tried, my back was hurting a lot. So I tried this sitting uh, laying down. And it was great, I had no pain at all. And I had so little pain that I fell right to sleep um, and just slept through the whole period. And when the bell rang, as as we just heard, the, the bells are somewhat loud. I was startled and woke up. Uh, and so in a sense, and, and I gave up on, on sitting that way. Um, in a sense, I was, you know, I was too comfortable. Um, I had uh, maybe you could say remove too many obstacles that that effort that's required to stay upright was important somehow to the the practice. And being in such a relaxed posture that I didn't have to exert any effort at all uh, made it actually too hard to stay, well, to stay awake, to stay alert, to pay attention. And so it's probably true that some amount of uh, barrier or obstacle uh, can be helpful to practice, because again, it it gives us focus and it uh, inspires us to manifest effort. You know, when... uh, People sometimes tell me that they don't have time to meditate. They imagine, you know, that they would—they'll meditate when they retire or something. Um, that they'll stop working and focus on practice. Um, and it is true that that uh, Buddha felt it was easier to practice if you became, you know, what he called a home lever, if you stopped working and didn't have responsibilities for family and such. But what he meant by that is very different than what most people mean by retirement today. You know, he was not uh, advocating that we try to practice, you know, on the beach or the golf course or something. Um, and in fact, he had to li- leave his kind of life of luxury, a life that probably looks more like what most of us mean by retirement or imagine by retirement. Uh, in order to start practicing, uh, he felt that 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 life, it was sort of too too pampered, too easy. Uh, it felt like uh, an escape from the world instead of uh, confronting the world. So you know, our, our practice is the middle way. Something I didn't. Talk about today, but you know, finding that balance, um, making an effort to walk that that center path, and certainly, we can run into trouble by making things too difficult, and also by making things too easy. So, thank you for that question.
3: Hi. Uh, when you talked about obstacles, uh, and Pamela talked about uh, the barrier, that combination uh, reminded me of uh, Suzuki Roshi's teaching about mind weeds in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And I was wondering if you could, if you, if you could talk about that a little bit. I'll just tell you, I haven't read it for a long time. I just remember what I, I'll just say one sentence what I remember from it. Uh, He said something like, if you learn to plant your mind weeds real close to your plant, it can nourish the plant and you see your practice make remarkable progress, which is not something Suzuki Roshi is known for <laughs> talking about those words. Uh, but uh, so there is a sense. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there, and maybe you can you can you can yeah. Thank you.
1: I, I'm not sure that I remember the chapter myself, but I think. To me, it sounds like what, what he's talking about is in a sense to keep everything close, not be pushing things away. Uh, and I think that too, <coughs> when I'm sitting and I start to have thoughts, I start to have, I don't know, perhaps mind weeds, uh, that, uh, that I don't try to push them away. Because uh, if I do that, they, they really do just come back. Um, but just, just notice them, pay attention. Uh, let them, let them do their, their thing, keep everything sort of close. Uh, and, uh, and that if I do that, you know, like everything else, they, they will pass. Um, that they. It just sort of uh, eventually at, at the same way they floated into my mind, they float they float back out. Um, and that if I try to get too much in the way, if I get too focused on trying to sort of direct that traffic, then uh, it, it just makes things worse. Then I, you know, I, I cause a traffic jam instead of avoiding one. Um, I cause a pileup uh, and that the best thing is just to let them take their course. Uh, so that's what comes to my mind when I think about that is not pushing things away, not trying to, you know, yank out the weeds necessarily, but just, just leave them alone um, and uh, notice them without getting either obsessed with them or angry at them or, just, just let them be.
3: I, I uh, just wanted to. Uh, you said that. Um, so, maybe I'm interested in your your uh, your comment about what I'm going to say if if it's moving off in the wrong direction, or uh, maybe what he meant by if you. In addition, like the conclusion of what you said is like, if you plant these weeds close to your plant and nourishes your plant, your practice may make remarkable progress. I um, put that like, as you notice these things and you don't, you just notice them and they float in and float out. When you notice that their power over you reduces Mm. and when you notice that then you start becoming free of Mm. your obstacles. So you need those obstacles to show you the way.
1: That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you.
0: I'd like to ask a question Uh, here at Jacoji. Wonderful. (laughs) I uh, maybe mentioned that uh, maybe some of this these obstacles are nourishment. And uh, can't these mind weeds actually be edible? <laughs> so practical <laughs>
1: I think so. I think uh, I think s- several of these questions have been sort of all relating to the same thing, which is without obstacles. In a sense, there wouldn't really be practice. Um, if uh, if practice was Entirely easy, natural, uh, it wouldn't really be practice anymore. Um, That, you know, part of our path uh, is effort. That's one of the elements of the Holy Eightfold Path. And without obstacles, barriers, weeds, we wouldn't need effort. We would have nothing to exert effort toward. So so yes, I, I mean, to me, that's another reason not to be sort of angry at the obstacles or, or angry at ourselves for having them. You know, when we're sitting and, and thoughts and daydreams and things arise you know, we shouldn't beat ourselves up for getting distracted. Those are just reminders to pay attention. And if we can use them as reminders, just notice them without judgment, uh, then yes, they can, they can nourish our practice. They're, they're, they're just something else to notice and observe and can help us learn to notice and observe. So yes, I think I think we can eat the weeds.
0: I think the weeds are our delusions because They're only weeds because we have designated them as such as something we don't want. And um, when we become aware that that's just our label, that's just our delusion, they also lose power over us.
1: I think that's very true. Um, If we think of these as things we have to push away and and so we try to push them away every time a thought comes, we react to it, then you're right. Then the thoughts are controlling us. They're determining what what we do moment to moment. If we just observe them, just do the same thing we would do anyways then you're right. We sort of we rob them of that power. Uh, they're no longer controlling our practice. They're just sort of drifting in and out.
0: And they are ever present.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yep uh,
0: here can you hear me okay I can Good. Um, a, a few things first thanks so much I, I really really enjoyed that nugget of uh, the road trip analogy going on a road trip upon going that's I'm, I'm gonna get a lot of mileage out of that garden the pun um, So a few other things I'd like to mention that arose during your talk. One was the uh, you mentioned the the bike riding analogy. Um, You know, some some folks wonder, or 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 just prepared that to meditating, um, perhaps for the experienced practitioners by getting on bike. And uh, I found myself remembering um, what it was like to learn a bike, and remembering that for most everyone that learned how to ride a bike, they did it. When they were pretty young, they had a lot of plasticity to their body and their mind. They didn't have a whole lot of ideas about what bike riding should look or feel like. Um, So I I find that for many of us um, coming to uh, meditation practice, uh, it's a little unfair to think of it like learning how to ride a bike because I've got 50 years or 50 plus years of ideas about what medicine is, what it will look and feel like, what I'm going to get from it, what I'm not. And that's, it goes for most everyone, I think. Um, So we enter into it with all kinds of things to shed that we might not have had to go through a similar process as a young person learning how to ride a bike. So, and that's, Learning how to shed things—that's one of the crucial themes in my practice. Is that uh, not trying to find anything new? I'm just trying to let go of uh, things that are obscuring what's what's underneath it all. What's what's already there and is always there. Um, Second, I also like that you you mentioned uh, scientists at some point in, in your talk or a scientific approach. It occurred to me that uh, when scientists are making observations and that's, that's one of the things we do in practice, we're we're um, attempting to just see for ourselves what happens or doesn't happen when we When we're paying attention, but scientists. I think it's been well established that they make their clearest best observations when they're not trying to support or refute a particular hypothesis when they don't have an agenda. Forget the hypothesis word. When scientists have an agenda, it's well-known that they ignore certain things and they pay you know, too much attention to other things. the light the agenda is an important part of the first step of really practicing, especially sitting practice. If, if you're sitting down with an agenda, you're already kind of um, missing, missing the boat. Um, and so, to those that say, you know, they're looking for guidance on, you know, I'm not feeling anything yet. Uh, what am I doing wrong? I'm i, I um, trying, trying to get something here. I'm not even sure what I'm trying to get. It's a like, lot well, ideas to learn how to, um, for me, anyways, to learn how to stop fueling my egoic will to, to stop having an agenda or to. Or notice when agenda arises and say, "Oh, hello, agenda. I wonder what my breath is doing," you know, and, and that sort of thing. I know I'm going on and on here, but I think I think that's 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 all I wanted to say. Just just things that arose for me that were little bits of clarity, and I wanted to share them back to you. So, thanks for that. I really appreciate you talking. Thank you again for the nugget.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, I I appreciate, uh, I like, uh, what you said about sitting without an agenda, um, which is really difficult because, I mean, so many of us come to sitting because we do have an agenda. We have something that is causing us to suffer that is making us unhappy. Um, Mm. I can't remember which teacher, but one teacher once said to me, yeah, that very, very few happy people walk into the Zendo for the first time. Um, They're usually walking in because there's something, there's something bothering them and they very much want it to change. And, and sometimes it does change as a result of practice, but but you have to sort of let go of that idea that you're going to make it change, um, that you're going to force it to change, uh, that you're going to achieve any particular agenda, as you said. So I think that's a, that's a very helpful framing. Thanks. I think with that, perhaps we should wrap up. I think we've, uh, We've gone a little longer than usual, uh, but uh, I really appreciated all the all the questions and comments, and uh, and thanks so much for coming together today and and uh, and sitting with me and each other. Um, especially in these times of of distancing, it's nice to have some way to connect with with each other and, and practice together. Uh, so thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.